Hello, everyone. Welcome to Red Planet Live. I'm your host, Ashton Zeth. I'm elated to be hosting the Mars Society's podcast and leading the conversation about human exploration of the universe and the future settlement of Mars. As a longtime space enthusiast, I am passionate about STEM education and making humanity an interplanetary species. Thank you so much for joining us today and supporting Red Planet Live. Today's episode uh, is very special for a few reasons. First, today's guest uh, is an integral member of the Mars Society crew and really essentially the reason that we are all here today. None other than Mars Society president and founder, Dr. Zubrin. Here we go. One second. Hi, Dr. Zubrin. Thank you for being here today. Hello. Thanks for inviting me. Good to meet you, Ashton. Pleasure. Uh, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Uh, this I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite a while. Uh, so I want to get everybody else up to speed about really who you are and, and why this is so important. So in addition to being the Mars Society's fearless leader, Dr. Zubrin is also president of Pioneer Astronautics, formerly a staff engineer at Lockheed Martin Ast uh, Astronautics in Denver. He holds a master's degree in aeronautics and astronautics and a PhD in nuclear engineering from the University of Washington. Zubrin has also authored several books, including A Case for Mars, uh, and is best known for his advocacy of the manned exploration of Mars. He is the driving force behind Mars Direct, a proposal intended to produce significant reductions in the cost and complexity of such a mission. Disappointed with the lack of interest from government in Mars exploration, Zubrin established the Mars Society in 1998, which works to educate the public, the media, and the government on benefits of exploring Mars and creating a permanent human presence on the Red Planet. Again, thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited about this. Uh, you're most welcome. I, I do want to correct one thing that oh, you yeah. said, yes, uh, which is that uh, I founded Pioneer Astronautics and led it for 27 years, but in uh, March of this year, I sold it off. And uh, so now I'm going to be free to devote more time to the Mars Society and especially to the initiative that we're going to talk about here today. I love it. That's that's amazing. Thank you for correcting me. I think that's integral to today's conversation. Um, but before we kick off the conversation, just have a couple quick Mars Society reminders. Again, as we've already talked about before, the Mars Society convention is happening October 5th through 8th. Uh, that's just a couple months away at Arizona State University in Tempe. Now, don't fret. For those that are un unable to attend in person, there is a virtual option. You just need to become a, a Mars Society member to access the convention online. Regular membership is only $50 annually. Students interested in participating do receive a discounted rate, just need to use your student email address to sign up. And lastly, any ASU students will get free access to the Mars Society Convention. There is a special link for ASU students, which can be found right there. All right, so Dr. Zubrin, on Red Planet Live, I do a segment called Question of the Day. It's really just meant to be an icebreaker, no right or wrong answers, uh, but I know that you're knowledgeable on this topic, so I'm very curious to hear your answer. So today's question of the day is, which space movie do you think is most realistic in terms of the scientific portrayal? Well, uh, Apollo 13 uh, is the most realistic. Uh, it is realistic. Uh, now, if we're talking, but Apollo 13 is not science fiction. If you, it, it's history. Um, but uh, if you want to talk about science fiction, that is of things that haven't happened yet, the future in space and so forth, I would say it's The Martian. Um, there are some technical errors in The Martian for sure, 
the the windstorm is much too powerful. Uh, the, uh, even though you can have high winds on Mars, the air is very thin, and you wouldn't be have wind blowing everything down as they show. Um, but uh, the spirit of it is is realism, not fantasy. Uh, my my main objection to The Martian, where where it falls short. Uh, is that while it is a can-do movie, just like Apollo 13, it, it shows that we can take on the challenge of the unknown, uh, challenge of space, and that's very positive. Um, the thing that's missing is that the Matt Damon character is not interested in Mars. Uh, he's not interested in the question of whether there's life on Mars uh, or the question of the human future on Mars. He's just somebody in a tough spot who needs to use his wits and grit to figure out how to get home. Now, actually, if people are interested, I've written a novel called First Landing, it was actually written in the late 90s, published in 2001. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, but it's a crew of five that also get into a jam, and they have to use their wits to figure out how to get out of it. Uh, but the difference is, is that several people in the crew have some understanding of the importance of Mars. Uh, so I think that could be the basis of the great Mars movie. So if you're into movies, making movies out there, contact me. We'll see what we can do. I like it. I love it. Okay. This is the next book that's going on my Amazon, you know, cart. Uh, I keep adding, you know, books faster to my, my cart and, uh, starting them before I can, can finish them. But I know the next thing I'm going to put on that list. So thank you. Uh, you know, one of my favorite movies, a uh, space movie specifically, and I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts is contact, uh, from the nineties with Matthew McConaughey, Jodie Foster. Do you think that that is all even possible? Could, could we, you know, through through the um, the satellites, get some sort of communication from extraterrestrial life, and then interpret that data and build a, a ship, and then be traveling somewhere into the the far off galaxies. Um, I kind of doubt it um, because broadcasting uh, plans to your most advanced technology is not adaptive behavior. Uh, the um, so I don't think that aliens would be broadcasting plans on how to build starships. Um, and uh, I do have questions whether they'd be broadcasting at all on the kind of radio frequencies that we use now. Um, the, the contact is based, well, the Jodie Foster character is based on Jill Tarter, who's a close associate of Frank Drake, and she's still prominent at the SETI Institute. Uh, and Drake and um, another fellow uh, came up with this idea in 1960 of using radio to detect extraterrestrials. But the frequency that they specified, uh, what's known as L-band, which was the state-of-the-art for space communication in 1960, is obsolescent now, uh, virtually obsolete. Uh, things like X-band and K-A-band that we use now will probably be obsolescent in 20 years um, or um, expand is already becoming obsolescent. And the, 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 so, uh, the looking for extraterrestrials with this kind of signals is, is almost in the same class as looking for them by the, um, lights of their gas lights. That is, uh, the, the radio we use now is probably a transitory technology. Uh, so maybe laser communication. So, well, there are people already looking for that. Um, to look for light signals that are coherent instead of uh, what comes from stars. Uh, I personally think that our best chance, first of all, I do think we will uh, detect extraterrestrial biospheres um, possibly within the next 10 years, possibly with Webb or the, um, I think uh, W first is now called the Rubin telescope uh, by detecting oxygen spectra in 
extraterrestrial planets. That will let you know that there's a biosphere there because free we Earth did not have free oxygen until we had plants to put it there. Because you see, oxygen wants to react with hydrogen, it wants to react with carbon, it wants to react with silicon, it wants to react with iron, it wants to react with aluminum. There's all sorts of stuff out there that will take down free oxygen and, and combine it. And so you don't have free oxygen in any quantity anywhere unless there's something fighting against chemical equilibrium, which is to say life. Okay, so if we detect a large amount of free oxygen in an exoplanet, we'll know there's a biosphere there. Now, the extraterrestrials could have detected our biosphere using the same technique for at least the past 500 million years. So they could have broadcasted to us in, in the Carboniferous or the Mesozoic or, you know, the, 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 the Eocene or any time, and nobody would be answering back. So they could get kind of bored with that. Um, now, while I think we will detect extraterrestrial biospheres uh, to detect extraterrestrial technological civilizations, I think we'd be better off looking for high energy activities like interstellar travel or artificial suns or things of this kind that are really loud that do not require conventions you know that is to de decode a radio signal you have to understand the language you have to understand the the conventions of the transmission uh whereas to detect um you know a, a fusion energy torch drive or something like that um, there are certain specific things about it that would make it distinguishable from a, a natural star and um, or even an artificial singularity, that is to say an artificial black hole that would be generating energy by things falling into it. There are things like this that we could look for that would give us a better chance, technological signatures. Sure. Okay. Exactly the answer that I was looking for. That that gave me all the details that I was hoping uh, in, in that exact uh, question with, with in regards to contact. Um, so earlier I mentioned that today's episode is special for a few reasons. Obviously the first being Dr. Zubrin joining. The second reason is that Dr. Zubrin has a very special announcement to share with the world. Uh, Dr. Zubrin, can you share the incredible news? Yeah. The Mars Society is uh, right now uh, launching a Mars Technology Institute whose purpose will be to uh, develop the technologies needed to settle Mars, okay? That is, we have ongoing right now uh, entrepreneurial space race, the leading element is SpaceX, but there are others that are on their heels, both here and in other countries. And as a result of this, um, you know, the SpaceX has already brought down the, the cost of space launch by a factor of five by introducing partial reusability. If Starship is successful, and I believe it will ultimately be successful, although there may be several more failures before it's successful, um, but um, then it will be possible for people to go to Mars and do exploration missions to Mars. But there are things that are needed to settle Mars that are not being developed by anyone and need to be if we're going to make humanity multi-planetary. Um, and, um, you know, um, in a number of places, for example, the case for Mars, or I have a new book coming out next year called uh, The New World on Mars, What Can We Create on the Red Planet? And um, we can talk a little bit more about that later in the show. Uh, I've made it clear 
what I think the major export of Mars will be, which is to say inventions. That is, uh, a Mars city-state will be a group of technologically adept people in a frontier environment which challenges them to innovate, which forces them to innovate, and which they are free to innovate in radical ways. And um, so that they will make lots of inventions, and those inventions will be necessary for the success of their settlements, but they can also be licensed on Earth as IP and generate the income that Mars will need to pay for imports. Okay, so that's the business model of a Mars colony, export IP. Okay, well, someone might say to me, and they have, um, well, if you think that an inventor's colony uh, could be a profitable enterprise, why not just start one on Earth right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there's some answers to that. That is, uh, the Mars settlers will be far more driven. Uh, you know, if someone, uh, they can't just quit if they get a better offer from Google and higher pay and, and, sure. and this or that. Uh, they're they're going to be uh, uh, totally committed uh, by their circumstances and also, frankly, by their selection. If you're someone willing to take on the risks and discomforts associated with challenging Mars, you're going to be somebody who's serious, who's not mm-hmm. just looking for a nice lifestyle. You're looking to do of something course. grand with your life. Okay, so all that is true. Uh, yet, we can't do that now. But we can do a Mars inventors colony on Earth now. And so that while uh, we won't have those advantages, we will have the advantages of uh, much lower costs. And in point of fact, we can actually do it now. So we're doing it now. Um, and that's what the Mars uh, Technology Institute is going to be. Now, um, there's a number of critical areas, actually, there's, there's quite a few, but uh, there's three that come right to the top of the list if we talk about settling Mars. Mm-hmm. And these have to do uh, with food, energy, and the labor shortage that Mars will experience. Okay. The last one is something that Mars actually has in common with uh, early America, where we had a severe labor shortage, which forced uh, Americans to become virtuosos in labor-saving technology. We became gadgeteers, nation of gadgeteers, and that multiplied the power of our labor and therefore multiplied the average wage, and that was one of the major encouragements of people to come here. Um, And uh, now, if you update that to today's technological horizon, labor-saving machinery continues to include labor-saving machinery and automation, but also robotics and artificial intelligence mm-hmm. are all ways to, to attempt to deal with a labor shortage. So the Martians are going to be heavy innovative in those areas. Another is energy. There are no fossil fuels on Mars other than those that you can make using some other energy source. Solar energy exists, but it's quite weak and unreliable. Wind is too thin. Uh, we need advanced forms of nuclear energy. And while we can get by on Earth quite nicely, actually, um, in, from an engineering point of view, with nuclear reactors like the pressurized water reactors, which are totally dominant in the nuclear industry today, which only use about 1% of the uh, energy in the uranium, um, that has discouraged the development of breeder reactors. Uh, also, the extremely hostile regulatory environment who wants to even dare try to do something new when it's hard enough getting uh, a reactor license, which is exactly the same as things we've been uh, building since 1954. Um, okay, but on Mars, 
uh, we're going to want to get the full amount or 90% of the energy out of the uranium, or as well as thorium, which is more common than uranium, and ultimately move to fusion. But then finally, and this is actually the upfront showstopper for a Mars colony, and that is food. Um, the Now, food is not a major consideration for doing a Mars exploration mission. You can bring your food. You send four, six, eight people to Mars. You can bring the food, and um, it'll be about the fourth biggest item on the mass list, uh, mass manifest of the mission. That is, it's not exactly in the noise, but it, it's really not something that that determines the mission. But you can't import the food to support a uh, hundred thousand person Mars town, let alone a million person metropolis like right. must cost about. Okay, I mean. A uh, hundred thousand people use a um, hundred thousand kilograms of food a day, um, which is a hundred tons a day, which is a starship landing on Mars every day to bring in food. So that's unthinkable. You got, got to grow it. Mm-hmm. Well, looking at growing food on Earth, where there's been tremendous progress in the 20th century, uh, eradicated hunger from most of the world, um, still take. Uh, not an average farm in developing sector. Let's take Iowa cornfield, which is incredibly productive. But Iowa last year produced as much corn as the whole United States did in 1947, and we were already an agricultural superpower then. Even so, it's producing 12 tons of corn per hectare per year. Hectare is 100 meters by 100 meter plot, about two and a half acres. Um, the, the, okay, that means per day, uh, 30 kilograms. So if you were feeding people on nothing but corn, you could feed 30 people with a hectare of mm-hmm. of, of, of Iowa cornfield. But of course, you wouldn't want people to eat nothing but corn. You don't want to introduce some variety, fruits, right. vegetables, meat, perhaps. So maybe 20 people. Okay. So now you add 100,000 people, that means 5,000 hectares. Okay. Um, 5,000 hectares, uh, which is uh, huge. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's assuming, by the way, that you could grow food in natural sunlight on Mars, even though, I mean, you know, you could grow it, but that it would be as productive as Iowa, even though the light level is half as much. You could grow food. I mean, Norway, they grow food and that's about Martian light, but it's not as productive. Okay. But Mm -hmm. let's just say you could 5,000 hectares. But if it goes with the uh, light intensity, it's more like 10,000 hectares. And if you try to provide artificial light at, uh, say, even 200 watts per square meter, okay, uh, and average sunlight at noon in Iowa is 1,000 watts per square meter, 200 watts per square meter, you're talking about uh, 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 10 gigawatts, uh, which is to say about a third of the amount of power that Australia uses just to support a town of uh, 100,000 people, not a particularly large city. Uh, so, and, and the problem here is that while photosynthesis at the cellular level is about 4% efficient, at the cornfield level, that is if you calculate the energy hitting a cornfield, um, and you, you, so that's the energy in, and you look at the energy that the corn itself represents coming out, it's about 0.2% efficient. Okay, so we're going to have to create forms of food production that transcend ordinary agriculture as it's currently practiced on Earth. And I believe that we can do this with biotech. I, 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 I believe that 
Um, we can do the first couple of steps in the food chain using uh, the first uh, physical chemical means and then actual biotech means to, mm-hmm. to, for example, turn, say, methanol, which you can make with physical chemical techniques into protein, and then you make those protein crackers. Well, you don't feed them to people. You feed them to tilapia or something in an aquaponic situation. Mm-hmm. I'm just giving you sort of an example yeah. of one option. Yeah. Okay. And now you've got something that someone would actually want to eat. Right. Um, this is all going to be developed at MTI. The Right. So, and in fact, our initial focus will be in the biotech area. That's great. Um, I'm, I'm so excited by this. And I know that we're going to talk more about it. Um, we're going to get some specific questions about MTI, which leads us to our next point. The third reason today's episode is special because uh, we have another guest who's going to be joining the conversation. Alan Boyle is an award-winning science writer, space reporter, and contributing editor at GeekWire. Alan is the... Say that once more. And a great guy. And a great guy. Absolutely. Uh, Alan is the mastermind behind Cosmic Log, a former science editor at MSNBC, and the author of The Case for Pluto, How a Little Planet Made a Big Difference. Uh, here we go. Welcome, hey, Alan. Hey. Thanks for the good word to both of you. And Ashton, you forgot one little thing from my resume, that Please I grew up on a farm in Iowa. So I'm quite uh, oh, familiar perfect. with how the corn grows. Got to be knee high by the 4th of July. So thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, Now I'm going to hand it over to you, Alan. And I know that you have some questions for Dr. Zubrin, so I'll let you take that over. Okay, Uh, Robert, it's great to see you. And and you're a nice guy, too. So uh, there you go. We're we're the perfect pair here. You've talked about what the Mars Technology Institute would do. I'm interested in a few of the details of how it would be structured. I can imagine someone at NASA saying, hey, well, research about Mars, that's something that that we do. And investors saying, well, why should, as you mentioned, why should I be paying to set up this institute when there are a lot of people working on this and, and, uh, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll figure out how to do what needs to be done by the time we get there? Okay. Um, all right. Those are excellent questions. Uh, NASA is not doing this. Okay. Uh, NASA has some interest in in situ uh, uh, resource utilization, as they call it. Um, I prefer to call it local resource creation because I don't believe there is any such thing as a natural resource. There's only natural raw materials. It's human creativity that turns materials into resources, and I could expand on that. But in any case, they have some that, but it's all oriented towards the first exploration missions. So, for instance, one area where NASA is interested is making propellant on Mars for the return trip. And when I was at Pioneer, we did a lot of work for NASA in demonstrating systems that could make, for instance, methane and oxygen out of Martian CO2 and water. And uh, this has now been demonstrated. And um, This, of course, is the basis of both my Mars Direct plan and uh, Elon Musk's plan for sending starships to Mars. The starship uses methane oxygen because we can make the return propellant on Mars. Um, But as I mentioned earlier, uh, food is not really an issue for NASA in terms of... It's not as easy as planting a potato patch. No. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, Okay, the, you can just bring the food uh, with you on a human mission to Mars. I mean, if you've got a crew of five and they're using a kilogram of food a day and it's a thousand day mission, that's five tons 
of, of, of material that you're bringing. And, and you can do better if you bring dehydrated food and take water, which you can recycle. You can cut that down by, you know, a factor of four or so. So now it's one ton or somewhere between one and five, depending. And uh, that's a lot less mass than, say, the structure of the spacecraft. It's, it doesn't dominate the mission. Um, so, sure. You, you can bring MREs or TV dinners or spaghetti and and the, and cook, okay? Now, the, NASA does have some interest in creating bioregenerative life support, which produces a small amount of food, which would be good for the morale of a mission to have some fresh lettuce instead of just all preserved foods and so forth. But if we're looking at producing food at scale uh, for a settlement, we need something entirely different, uh, entirely different from conventional field agriculture, entirely different from conventional greenhouse agriculture. Um, and you see the, the 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 now, if you look at the biotech industry, okay, so they're okay, they are into biotech, of course, uh, but they're looking for things uh, first and foremost with uh, high cash value, such as pharmaceuticals. Okay, that's very good. I'm glad the biotech industry is making novel pharmaceuticals. Uh, they are looking at boosting the uh, vitamin content of various conventional crops, so things like golden rice that have vitamin A in it, but it still needs the rice paddy. Um, the, the idea of, uh, of doing this, uh, of really solving the problem of producing food in bulk with very limited acreage, with two orders of magnitude less acreage than is readily available to a terrestrial farmer. Um, this is, is a different kind of biotech. And, and once again, we're interested in creating conventional foods. And once again, on Earth, even if, if, if you're doing something like aquaponics, the base of the food chain is photosynthesis. And you can do that because you have uh, huge amounts of land or pond or whatever it is you've got uh, relative to what the Martians will have. So they, in order, they don't have the same driving constraints. Okay. I get it. I get it. And I suppose the same is for uh, robotics and uh, and uh, also for power, nuclear power. I know we've talked right. a lot about nuclear power in the past as being the key energy source on Mars. Uh, so NASA is doing some things around the edges and all those things, but you are optimizing this for Mars. And, and in why particular for that, the settlement of Mars. And why is it that private investors would want to sign on okay. for this. All right. Now, here's the thing. Okay. We believe that dealing with these technologies, these are not flight technologies, these are settlement technologies. We will be developing technologies in large part that have major potential terrestrial application. So, for instance, cheap food, all right? Uh, and the, the um, and so, what we're going to do is uh, license these technologies either by uh, licensing the patents or creating spin-off companies around the various patents that are generated. And the Mars Technology Institute will have some equity in those companies in return for licensing the um, intellectual property. So we aim to create uh, essentially an empire of spin-off companies using our inventions and collecting revenue from them. And by so doing, see, we're not just going to develop the technology. We're going to do two other things. One is we're going to make money 
so that the Mars Technology Institute isn't just going to be an engine of invention. It's also going to become an engine of finance for not only financing further research, but ultimately, if we're fully successful, financing the settlement of Mars. Okay, that's the the next thing we're going to do. Uh, that is, the, the, the become an engine of finance. And then the third thing we're going to do is in the process of doing this, we're essentially demonstrating the business model of an actual Mars colony. Okay, That is, mm-hmm. rather than go to investors and say, fund a Mars colony and we'll set up an inventor's uh, colony there and that will generate IP and you'll get your money. We're going to say first, fund an inventor's colony on Earth and we'll show that an inventor's colony uh, focusing on the issues that Mars brings to the fore can make money. And then um, we will both have money to finance the settlement of Mars, and we'll have proven the viability of such a model to investors to also get involved in that. And in fact, uh, I, I, I see that people are already loving the reference to an empire of spin-off companies. And in fact, the, as I understand it, the structure of the Institute uh, allows for nonprofit uh, activities as well as for-profit activities. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the Mars Technology Lab. Right. Okay. So the Mars Technology Institute, which we uh, have founded and which is uh, 501c3 tax deductible, you can donate to it. It's tax deductible. Um, it funds research. Okay. Now, we're also in the process of setting up a C-Corp called the Mars Technology Lab whose initial equity will be entirely owned by the Mars Technology Institute. Okay. However, that is an entity that is open to investment. So the idea is that if people, uh, and this is only for qualified investors, okay, uh, this is a high-risk investment and it's a long-term investment. We're not interested in, in uh, investors that are looking at uh, you know, what's the easiest way to make the next buck? We're interested in investors who want to use their money to change the world. And I mean, look, this was Musk's attitude with SpaceX and uh, Tesla. Okay. He could have made more money easily by setting up some more dot coms and stuff like that. Okay. Right. Or a Facebook game. That's what he once told me is I could have right. made more money by doing a, a Farmville sure. game. All right. We, so we're not, uh, but we are looking at people you know, who, who, who want to do that and who um, want to put the money to work in that and understand that it's a long-term investment, but that it could potentially pay off very large, um, both for Mars, for humanity, and for them, uh, that they can do well by doing good. Um, and so we're going to set up such a vehicle. There's a, a number of uh, formal steps that need to be taken in order to set that up. But that... Um, is in the cards as well. And then we will set up additional C-Corps around specific technologies that are spun out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I understand that there's a, a QR code up on the screen right now. If if people are interested in donating, uh, that QR code facilitates your donation. And you can also go to the marsociety.org website. I, I suppose there will be information there as well about donating. But how much uh, is going to be required to get this thing off the ground? Well, it, it, we can start uh, uh, relatively small with a couple of million dollars uh, to begin a, a research program. I prefer more. Um, the the and the idea here is that 
Um, we're going to do research that generates IP, but may, uh, that generates income. Uh, also, uh, th there's actually going to be uh, about six ways that the Mars uh, Technology Institute will assemble funds. The first is donations. Okay. Second is through investment in the Mars Technology Lab. The third is through licensing income, and then also dividends from spinoff companies that we have equity in. Uh, and then um, both the Mars Technology Lab and the Mars Technology Institute, the first is a for-profit corporation, the other is a non-profit corporation. There are various opportunities that NASA and uh, other government agencies, the National Science Foundation, offers to bid on contracts that are devoted to one or the other of these kinds of entities. Um, you know, my own company, Pioneer Astronautics, uh, my former company, uh, we funded for um, 27 years, winning over 70 NASA contracts. Uh, we, we never needed investors. We never needed loans. Uh, we had income from that, and we generated some IP, which helped in the ultimate sale of the company. Uh, mm -hmm. And the uh, so uh, the Mars Technology Lab and Mars Technology Institute will be able to engage in that game as well. Um, the um, so, in other words, contract income um, from NASA and also uh, from uh, private corporations. Uh, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's uh, quite a few. Uh, uh, different routes for uh, assembling the cash that is needed to uh, do the job. Do you have a time frame in mind? Like, when do you want to see the Mars uh, Technology Institute open its doors? I'd like to do it by uh, the first of the year. Um, the, um, you know, we are... Uh, you know, going out with this right now, telling people about it. Uh, you should know uh, we, we've gotten a pretty good response so far, uh, it, although we've only just put our, our little toe in the water. Uh, you may know that I, I was recently in Ukraine, and um, on the way back, I stopped off in Poland to Krakow, and I gave a talk at the university there. And the and it was a talk about, you know, the entrepreneurial space race, stuff like this, like basically my book, The Case for Space. And uh, mm -hmm. in the question period, someone in the audience asked me a question. Uh, he said, so what's next for the Mars Society? And I mentioned a, a few things. We're starting a Mars Technology Institute. Well, at the end of the talk, somebody, this is in Poland, walks right up to the podium and slams down 500 American dollars and says, I want to donate this to the Mars Technology Institute. And then just a couple of weeks ago, someone else who had heard about it through the rumor mill sent us $2,000. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, because I, I think there's going to be a lot of enthusiasm for this because, you know, it's one thing to support the Mars Society, help us send, uh, um, spread the word, help us defend, you know, the Mars rover mission. We helped save the Curiosity mission, which was going to be canceled. Um you know, things like that, or and, and the stations in the desert where we're researching how to explore on Mars. But none of these things in themselves represent a path to actually putting humans on Mars. And what we're doing here, the plan here is to create not only the technology, but the finances that will enable the settlement of Mars. We don't want to have to 
I mean, if you rely on NASA, we will never settle Mars. Um, it's possible that Musk might launch a Mars settlement, but uh, I don't want to have to count on that. Um, and have you talked with Elon Musk about this already? Uh, I've run the idea by him. Uh, he, he's uh, not getting involved at this point. Uh, but that's fine because, uh, you know, uh, Frederick Douglass uh, once said, uh, he who would be free must himself strike the blow. Okay. Uh, and in another place, he, he said, you know, he was a, uh, a black abolitionist. You know, uh, emancipation would not be worth half as much if it was done by the efforts of white people alone. Okay. Uh, and uh, I think that the people who want to see Mars settled, who want to, who have uh, ideas on how to create a more humanistic society on Mars, and I think the most successful Mars society will be the ones that offer people um, greater chances to exercise their human potential, because those are going to be the ones that actually attract immigrants. Um, the 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 we need to be able to do this ourselves and not uh, be um, uh, dominated by uh, uh, massive corporations or government. And a lot of potential models for an institute. It could be a virtual institute here at the University of Washington. There's a virtual institute for astrobiology, but there's also a physical institute, uh, the Allen Institute, that started out just being for brain science, but now they've taken in cell science and immunology. How do you see the institute being structured? Is there going to be a physical campus? Eventually, yes. Um, that's that's our goal. Uh, now, um, we may start out um, with only a, a, a rather small lab of our own and outsource a lot of research to existing uh, uh, the, the biotech uh, companies. Uh, in other words, we would um, pay them to do certain parts of the research and they would get the work and they um, could get some equity in the patent, but we would have majority equity in the patent. Um, the, um, we're also going to do something that is extremely, un but, but the idea is to grow this thing, both grow the, the central company itself, um, and also grow its income potential through its IP, um, and through investments, which will come in as we develop IP, um, the, 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 to the point where we eventually have a central campus, although we might continue to do some distributed products and uh, pro projects, and these could occur uh, internationally, by the way, not just in the United States. Uh, but in addition to that, we're going to do something which is uh, truly unique, and it builds on the heritage of the Mars Society. You know, the Mars Society, okay, we built the Arctic Station and the Desert Station, and we have the University Rover Challenge, and also the European Rover Challenge, which, by the way, is coming up uh, next week in Poland. I'm actually going to be there. Um, the uh, and the amazing thing about these projects is that um, we've had tens of millions of dollars worth of work done for us without paying for it. That is, we've paid for the materials. Okay, 
and paid for the materials uh, to build, you know, for instance, the desert station, but we didn't pay anybody to build it. We built it. Uh, and there's crews that go out to the desert station and do refits. And there are crews that go to the desert station and the Arctic station to do the research that we do there. And we don't pay them. They pay us. Um, and, uh, and the, the rover challenge, you, you, you have an amazing amount of, of work done creating advanced rovers by uh, the, the, the university teams themselves, who nobody is paying, and but also the people that uh, Kevin Sloan and, and his staff who actually operate the rover challenge in the desert. Nobody's paying them. And it, it, these are um, very high quality people who if you paid them, you'd have to pay them a lot. So, mm -hmm. so this is our volunteer army. And what we're going to do, um, uh, once again, the volume of this will depend upon our funding. Uh, but we are going to ask for proposals for certain kind of work, for example, initially in biotech, where people say, look, I've got a lab or here I'm a high school teacher and I've got a bunch of students and we're willing to do this. Here's our, our, our experimental program. We're willing to do this. We just need you to pay for the materials. Mm -hmm. And if it's a meritorious proposal and the team is credible, uh, we'll fund it. And uh, so that we will create an enormous volume of research work at the cost down at least a factor of 10 below what it costs. Because like you run an R&D company, like 90% of the cost is salaries and benefits. Um, and um, materials, rent, stuff like that is small. So, and in this case, we don't even have to pay rent. So, um, <laughs> the, 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 um, so we're going to fund this. So th this will amplify our R&D effort. We will pay for the materials. We will own the IP that they generate. But if you think about, for example, say high school students, knowing that they are researching a biotech technology that could enable the human settlement to Mars, how exciting that is to them, and that they're doing something real, that they're part of something grand. This is an enormously powerful STEM initiative on its own terms. Okay. As I, well, I imagine as, some uh, students are already asking, "Where do I sign up?" Because the school term is going to be is is pretty much started already. Is that something you plan to roll out sooner rather than later? It depends on funding, but at the latest, it will be uh, rolled out next school year. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And uh, where is it going to be? Uh, if if you does that determine on is that determined by who is going to be with the funder for example if jeff bezos were to say okay i'll give you a couple of million dollars and and let's put the institute in kent washington uh how, how do you determine where you would have a physical campus well that would certainly be a convincing argument uh the um so if you're listening jeff um <laughs> let's talk um but the but actually the pacific northwest is one of our favorite areas to put this. Another is, is perhaps here in Colorado. Uh, those are, are the two top of the list. Pacific Northwest would be excellent, a very high quality of life. And while costs are very large in Seattle and Bellevue, if you go a little bit further out uh, to you know Everett or Kent or places like that, the cost can become reasonable, uh, not too different from uh, American norms. And, um, and you've got a tremendously intellectual population You've got the University of Washington, which is a tremendous university. Uh, and that's actually where I got my PhD. Um, and um, very strong in, uh, well, 
biotech, in aerospace, and in artificial intelligence. Yes. And there's, um, of course, in the Seattle area, there's a lot of money generated by people who either graduated from the UW or who simply migrated to the area. Uh, there's been aerospace there for a long time, including, um, uh, uh, well, initially Boeing, of course, but more recently Blue. And and whenever you have large companies like Boeing and Blue, you always get large numbers of people who work there for a few years and then branch off and start their own small businesses. That's, for instance, I'm an example of that, Pioneer. And many other people who once worked at Lockheed Martin started a small aerospace companies here. So there's a lot of that in Seattle. There, of course, is software money and internet money and this kind of thing. Of course, most famous being Microsoft, but many others, um, software and internet related um, information technology companies, which are now branching into artificial intelligence and virtual reality and all these sorts of things. And then, yes, there's a lot of biotech there. So mm -hmm. Pacific Northwest uh, is, is one of our, uh, 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 um, is perhaps the top of the list. And um, Colorado's an alternative, costs here are lower. Um, and um, there's, a, a, you know, we have uh, some very strong universities here as well. Um, but those two uh, uh, lead the selection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, there are other space institutes. I, I think one of the one of our people in the audience has mentioned the Space Studies Institute. Uh, there's the Lunar and Planetary Institute. Uh, is there a possibility of partnering with these, or is this something that you really want to have as your own thing? Well, there's certainly possibilities of partnering with anyone. Uh, the the in aerospace, uh, people team with each other all the time, uh, and if it makes sense to team, if, um, if if there's a certain part of the process that requires elaborate facilities and someone already has them, um, and furthermore, if they're um, the kind of people that we want to work with, then sure, we team up with them, and and uh, so. Uh, the teaming arrangements are possible uh, for both self-funded research projects um, and, and equity could be divided in uh, uh, various ways, depending upon who's bringing what to the table. Uh, also, teaming on proposals to uh, NASA, for example, um, the uh, well, that's done all the time. As you know, if you look at uh, various uh, uh, teams that bid on things like the human landing system or other stuff. Uh, right. Uh, it's, it's always teams. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you mentioned NASA. Have you talked with anyone at NASA about this, or are they hearing about this for the first time along with everybody else? And also, uh, I assume that you have some advisors, like a board of scientific advisors. Maybe you could talk about the sorts of people who have signed on to this, perhaps, that uh, other folks would recognize as people in the space community. Okay, well, uh, we have uh, some people who um, just recently retired from NASA, from uh, uh, um, uh, two from NASA Ames. One is uh, Bill Clancy, who's very strong in uh, uh, artificial intelligence, mm -hmm. uh, very strong. And uh, also uh, Larry Lemke, who's a very original thinker from uh, NASA Ames, and uh, Tony Muscatello, uh, who's a a chemical engineer uh, and nuclear engineer for, uh, from uh, Kennedy Space Center. 
Um, so there's some of them. We've got uh, people that are very strong in the biotech area. Um, Steve Benner, uh, who is actually the first person to synthesize a gene, is on our board of advisors. Uh, Shannon Nangle, who's a, a brilliant uh, young woman who's founded a biotech company of her own called Circe. Uh, she's uh, advising us. Um, we have um, other people who are into aquaponics um, because that could be, in other words, a process might involve physical chemical step, uh, something that is um, clearly biotech as it's currently defined, and then things that are sort of unconventional agriculture, uh, you know, as you might combine all three of those to create an end-to-end process. Um, we have nuclear people. Um, uh, Tom Please, who goes way back to the first uh, breeder reactor efforts in the United States, uh, in Idaho, and, and who's now involved in a thorium uh, reactor company, uh, uh, David Poston, who uh, uh, created uh, the Killer Power Initiative, is on our uh, board of advisors. Um, the, um, we also have people with uh, very strong business backgrounds. Um, Eric Bethke, who uh, created this game, Millions on Mars and uh, Starfleet games and many other internet games. So he's, he's also a person with, well, A, knows a lot about programming and B, knows a lot about business. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, other people that are very sharp in, in the business world. So we have people who have uh, uh, strengths in, in those areas. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned some of the other things that the Mars Society has done over the years, including the challenges and the research stations in Utah and Canadian Arctic. How important is this to you? Is this kind of the big bet for your organization? Uh, is the Mars Society going to rise or fall, depending on how this campaign goes? Well, the Mars Society uh, has existed without this for a quarter century and could continue to exist at its current level and doing a lot of good. Uh, you know, I mean, we, we've been spreading the word. I mean, there, it, SpaceX would not exist if there wasn't a Mars Society because uh, we helped, it wasn't just us, that's for sure, but we helped recruit him to making uh, space his calling, making humans to Mars his calling, and many other people, um, not only at SpaceX, but throughout uh, the entrepreneurial space industry and, and the uh, old-fashioned space industry uh, have been rallied to want to make this their life's work by by our outreach. Um, you know, uh, the uh, we as I mentioned, we've defended a number of key missions that would have been canceled if not for us, and those include uh, Mars Express in Europe. Uh, it includes uh, Curiosity uh, here. Um, and um, which the NASA science administrator at the time wanted to cancel because it was overrunning its budget. Um, and we came out very strongly on that. Hubble, actually, um, the, uh, we took a stand for Hubble uh, and it was very useful because the only other people that were defending Hubble were the Hubble scientists and people mm-hmm. said, well, that's them seeking their self-interest. We, you know, um, you know, O'Keefe wanted to kill Hubble and, said, why are you worried about Hubble? We're going to the moon and Mars. And I said, if, if you're afraid to send a rescue mission to Hubble, you're, nobody's going to the moon and Mars, okay? And um, so we came out strong and don't desert Hubble. And um, I'm proud to say we helped run O'Keefe out of his job and got someone in there, Mike Griffin, who um, was prepared to save Hubble and did. Uh, the the um, 
And then there's the stations. So we could do all this kind of stuff. But uh, and, and, and regardless of the fate of this initiative, we are going to continue to do all these sorts of activities that we have become known for. But I want to up the game here. I want to get people to Mars. And um, the, you know, I, I have to say, um, look, I was born in 1952. Okay. And my father and all my uncles served in the war. And, um, you know, they came back and they had set the world right. Okay. We not only had won the war, we had won the peace. We'd given the Germans and the Japanese better governments than they had ever created for themselves. We created a better world. <clears throat> and then, and, and the U.S. government did that. And um, the, 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 the American people, together with the government, did that. And then they did other things. They did the interstate highway system. They did Adams for Peace. They did Apollo. And this is what I saw growing up. And that was the government that I knew. And so when I wrote the case for Mars, I figured, look, what we have here is an aberration. We've had, you know, this happened with Nixon and this happened with... Carter and this with this one and that one, that one. But if we can get this thing straightened out and we can have humans to Mars because, look, here's a plan. If, if we had the kind of determination that we had in Apollo, we could have humans on Mars in 10 years. Okay. And, but it, it, it didn't come together. We, we've had a, a governmental senility and now we have governmental chaos. And the, um, I mean, it's incredible what, what's mm -hmm. going on right now with, with the government and, and, and and the toxic nature of the political discourse that would make any great project extremely difficult for the government uh, to uh, uh, manage. So, okay, we had, okay, something else come in, which has been very productive, say, well, in view of the fact that the, the government hasn't been, uh, it, it's no longer credible as, as the people that could open up Mars, we've had this entrepreneurial uh, thing going on. But, you know, uh, and, and what Musk has done is uh, extremely impressive. He's shown that it's possible for a well-led entrepreneurial team to do things that previously thought that only the governments of superpowers could do, and not only that, do it in one-third the time at one-tenth the cost, and even do things that they had deemed impossible altogether. But he's also showing that it's possible for such entrepreneurs to become diverted uh, yes. mm -hmm. in their priorities. And uh, so... Uh, I don't want to have to count on uh, the, the space entrepreneurs to do a firm. I, I am willing to actually count upon the space entrepreneurs to create ever cheaper space flight technologies because a virtuous cycle has been unleashed by SpaceX's accomplishments. Cheaper space launch means more launches, means launches get even cheaper, and the components of spacecraft become cheaper, and the designers of spacecraft uh, can become less conservative because the launch is cheaper. All this is good stuff. So we're going to have a lot more space activity. But to actually get humans on Mars takes a vision that is sustained and that goes beyond how do we make the most profit doing you know, an orbital research lab. I think there's going to be orbital research labs. Things like this um, are, are going to become uh, uh, credible business plans in, in the very near future. Um, in fact, we're seeing several private space stations. Uh, uh, right, used. right. Okay, started. But the but humans to Mars takes a leap beyond that. And so, basically, if this is going to happen, 
we have to create an institution that is dedicated to this purpose and which can acquire the means to execute this purpose. Um, and that's the purpose of the Mars Technology Institute. So, so I have to turn things back over to Ashton, but I had one last question. Uh, I know you've been to Ukraine, you've been to Poland, I follow you on social media, and so you're very aware of what the political situation is and, and the climate challenge, and, and you've spoken up quite a bit uh, for using nuclear power as part of that mix. It's got to be part of the solution. There are a lot of challenges facing this world. So why would someone spend, you know, a significant amount of money on Mars research rather than fixing the problems that we see here on Earth? Okay, that's an excellent question. It's because of this, that the while I do believe that global warming is real, uh, I do not believe it's the greatest threat facing humanity today, not by a long shot. Uh, uh, I do not believe that resource depletion is real. There are people that believe that. There are people that believe overpopulation is real. I, I do not agree with that. Um, uh, resources are a function of technology, and the more people, the more inventors, and that's why we actually have much more resources per person than we did 100 years ago, let alone 1,000 years ago. Uh, and But there is something that threatens humanity um, severely, and that is bad ideas. And in particular, one bad idea. Uh, it's the same bad idea that caused the catastrophes of the 20th centuries, and it's threatening us now. And this idea came in a variety of forms, but what it boils down to is there isn't enough for everyone. And so we need to fight it out with them in order to get what there is, or at least to protect what we have from them who they're coming for it. Okay? And and of course, this idea that there, that we are in a zero-sum world is promoted by tyrants because the ultimate justification for tyranny is the putative necessity for war, that there has to be central directive leadership. This is the justification of the Putin crowd. Um, the, 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 it was the justification for Hitler in his day as well, and the various uh, militarists in Japan and, and what have you. Um, the, 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 and now, as I said, um, I don't believe that the resources of Earth are limited, but they seem to be, okay? The, the, it, to try to prove to someone that the resources of the Earth are unlimited, it, it, it's like trying to prove to a mathematically illiterate person that a, a one-inch line segment can have an infinite number of points in it, okay? It... it, 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 it it seems counterintuitive. No, it's one inch long. It doesn't have an infinite number of points in it. Okay. On the other hand, if you can show a, a line that extends infinitely in both directions, anyone could perceive that that has an infinite number of points in it. Okay. And so similarly, if we can show that it's this vision of the future that people have. If people can understand that by working together, we can up open up planets, there's no point killing each other over provinces, okay? And so if, if you want to save humanity, this is the thing to do, to make it clear that we have available to us this unlimited future. And it's this unlimited future that undermines all those whose rule depends upon the putative necessity for war, okay? You know, Hitler, he said this idea of perpetual prosperity through scientific invention, he said it is a Jewish plot 
to undermine people's belief in the necessity for war. Now, it's not a Jewish plot, but it does undermine people's belief in the necessity for war. And I believe that we have to undermine people's belief in the necessity for war. And the, the greatest way we can do it is by showing that there's an infinite future that is available to us. Wow. That's powerful. Excellent. Well, I think this was a very informative. Thank you, Alan, so much for hopping in and, and helping with this conversation today. Mm -hmm. I think we got some great information about MTI. I'm really excited for that. So we're going to let Alan go and we're going to shift gears and start to take some audience questions. There we go. Prosper, yes. baby. <laughs> good to see you, Robert. <laughs> All right. Good seeing you, Alan. Mm -hmm. All right. So I know we've got a ton of questions from audience members. So let's kick it off. Uh, the first question that I have for you, Dr. Zubrin, is you've been interested in science and space exploration since you were a young student. At what point did the idea of humans to Mars become one of your primary goals? Uh, I would say in the 60s. Uh, I was five when Sputnik flew. Uh, and it's actually the first major world event that I can remember in terms of my own personal experience. I can remember Sputnik. I can remember. You could look up, you could see it. Uh, and the, now while the adults may have been uh, uh, alarmed by Sputnik, I, I was delighted. Um, and uh, because I was an early reader and I was already reading science fiction and what Sputnik said to me was that these stories about space travel were going to be true. And I wanted to be part of it. Now it took a little longer for me to uh, have a broader understanding of what is real in space and what isn't. But by the early 60s, I had read enough um, of young adult science books, I mean, real science books, but mm -hmm. for people my age, uh, to know Mars was the interesting place, that Mars was the place that was most likely to have life, and it was the place that was the most promising to sell. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was from that point on, I'd say about the time I was 10 or so. Uh, and, you know, in the 60s, we're going to be on the moon by 1970 and Mars by 1980, or to be more exact, 1981, um, and, 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 you know, Saturn by 1990 and Alpha Centauri by the year 2000. I wanted to be part of that, and that's why I learned all the science I could. Um, now, of course, the only part of that program that was actually realized was we get, did make it to the moon by 1970. Right. But then Nixon aborted the thing. Uh, Nixon aborted NASA's plans to have humans on Mars by 1981. If they hadn't, Okay, then the, the first children born on Mars probably would be graduating high school on Mars right about now. But, um, but you know, here's the thing. Even though what Nixon did was a, an amazingly stupid decision, it's kind of like Ferdinand and Isabella telling Columbus after he discovered the new world, uh, get lost, we're not interested. Um, the, 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 okay, if he hadn't made that mistake, it would have been made by Carter or the one after that or the one after that. In other words, uh, Apollo could have gone further. It mm -hmm. could have gone all the way to Mars, okay, had it not been aborted. But the, the idea of the settlement of space being supported by this kind of determination, uh, sooner or later that was going to fail. And, um, and I have to think that while this entrepreneurial space revolution has been uh, uh, created in significant part by people inspired by the vision of Mars. I don't think by itself it can be counted on to get us to Mars. It can be counted on to create a lot of useful technology to get us to Mars. Mm -hmm. I think ultimately it's the idea itself. Mm 
that, you know, Victor Hugo said, nothing can stop an idea whose time has come. And that is provided that the idea has messengers that can recruit to its banners, the people prepared to make it prevail. And, um, and that's what we're doing. I mean, this is the idea that is moving me. Uh, it's the idea that moves the Mars Society. And I think that if we create this Mars Technology Institute, um, the word can be made flesh. Absolutely. Yeah. It moves me and, and all of our, our listeners and all the Mars Society members and everybody that's that's tuning in today. Uh, great answer here. Uh, another question is, with recent findings, we can sustain life on the moon making oxygen. Does the same prove true for Mars? Well, uh, you can make oxygen on the moon uh, in many places on the moon out of uh, breaking up iron oxide. The the technology to do that exists. It's a somewhat difficult process, but it's it's doable for sure. And then, of course, at the South Pole, there may be water, which is easier to get oxygen out of. Mm-hmm. On Mars, it's still easier because there's plenty of water on Mars. Uh, there are glaciers on Mars as far south as 38 North, which is the latitude of San Francisco on Earth. Glaciers that are pure water ice, and they have as much water in them as the Great Lakes. And then there's a carbon dioxide atmosphere, and either carbon dioxide or water or both can um, you can get oxygen out of either by physical chemical means or, of course, biotechnology. That's how plants make oxygen. Um, the, so that can be done. So, and, you know, my Mars mission plans are based on the idea of doing such things, in particular to make the return propellant, which has enormous leverage for enabling the Mars mission. But if we're going to settle Mars, we need to go beyond making propellant. Uh, we're going to have to make all the different kinds of things that people need, or a, a large number of them. And um, and the top of the list is food. And, and 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 here's one other thing, by the way, I didn't mention this with Alan. By taking on the challenge of cheap, mass-produced food, okay, we're going to completely refute the canard that space people don't care about the needs of the poor on Earth. Okay, we're going to flush that down the toilet bowl of history. We're going to prove that we can do more good for Earth than all these other people who are always uh, criticizing us. Sure, sure. Uh, Speaking of maybe some criticisms here, uh, do you believe Artemis will be able to send the first man to the moon by 2025? Is that realistic or wishful thinking? I think it could be done, but it's not going to be done. Uh, I don't think that Artemis is being approached with the kind of seriousness and resolution required to do that. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, look, uh, Trump started Artemis in 2017. Now, here we are six years later, you know, six years uh, after Kennedy launched Apollo, it was 1967, the Saturn V had flown, and every all the vehicles were very far in development. You, you know, I have friends in uh, Houston, and uh, they go by Johnson Space Center frequently. And you go by Johnson Space Center on a Saturday or a Sunday right now, the parking lot's empty. It was not empty during Apollo on the weekend. Okay, uh, th- this is just not being approached with the same kind of seriousness as Apollo. Uh, so while I, I don't think it's beyond our means to have people on the moon by 2025, I, I don't think that Artemis is, is being pursued in this kind of way. Uh, I think uh, 
a lot of the methodology of Artemis was to throw around a lot of money in lots of directions in order to get a lot of people to support it. Uh, there, there was not a coherent plan. Um, you know, the, the, the SLS was designed without the right upper stage, and the Orion capsule is much too heavy for the SLS with the current upper stage. And, you know, the Saturn V, the uh, uh, lunar excursion module, and the Apollo capsule were all designed as a set to execute a plan. It, what we have with Artemis is a variety of programs that exist on their own terms. The, the SLS, the Orion, uh, the human landing system, Starship, uh, uh, the lunar orbit gateway, that each were funded in, on their own terms, but not as part of a coherent plan. Sure, this is Yeah. Um, it's, it's like building a house out of stuff you happen to pick up randomly at garage sales. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So not everything fits together. There's a little bit of a disconnect uh, between all the parts here. Got a goal, but uh, we may need to, to go back to the blueprints there. Um, I do see a question here, and I'm curious the answer. Would you go to the first manned mission to Mars if asked? Yeah, I would. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get the chance. Um, 71 right now. So, um, you know, I, frankly, you know, I was 17 when I landed on the moon, and and if you had asked me then that, you know, when you're 70, will there, could you believe that there won't be people on the moon and Mars? I would have thought that was ridiculous. Um, of course, there's, we're going to be living on the moon and Mars by the time I'm uh, 70. Um, but the, the political class completely dropped the ball. And um, the um, so what I want to do right now is make sure that people get to Mars. And that's why I, the remainder of my working life is going to be focused on creating this Mars Technology Institute. And we're lucky that that is the, your primary goal. Um, one of the questions I have here is about, uh, there's a major economic incentive, uh, or there was, excuse me, for European explorers and traders to cross the Atlantic and uh, eventually discover the new world. Is there a similar incentive for exploring and settling the red planet? Uh, well, okay, now here's a very interesting thing. Um, the colonies that were founded primarily on the basis of economic incentive uh, were not the ones that really had the greatest effect on history. Um, you know, the uh, France at the time of, uh, say, the 1600s and 1700s had four times the population of England. Okay, and and they did acquire large territories in uh, Canada and the whole Louisiana uh, uh, basin, um, as well as elsewhere. Uh, but these were all set up for the purpose of economic gain, for the purpose of trading uh, 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 widgets with the Indians in return for beaver pelts. They did not try to set up communities. The British, on the other hand, they came here to New England and then Mid-Atlantic and elsewhere um, with the idea of creating communities of places where people would live and, and places with churches and schools and, and institutions. And guess what? As a result of that, British women were willing to go to North America and French women were not. And in consequence, despite the fact that France was four times the size of England, 
1750, when it came down to the final struggle, um, there were 2 million English-speaking people in North America and 50,000 French. Mm -hmm. um, and that is because the goal of the colonists was to create a new world. Uh, it wasn't strictly a monetary thing. There were certainly various monetary enterprises that were engaged, and some actually did make money and others lost money. But there was a, a, a deeper motive. Um, right. and, and that's the one that really was decisive um, in, in, in creating a, a remarkable new kind of nation, which then proceeded to um, not exactly invent, but uh, demonstrate the potential of democracy. And yes, invent steamboats and telegraphs and essentially generated electrical power and uh, recorded sound and motion pictures and airplanes and nuclear power and computers uh, and the internet uh, and iPhones. And the, 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 it became an engine of invention for the world. So I think, and, and, and you know, and that is, those inventions is how America benefited the old world, not by being a source of beaver pelts. Right. Uh, I, I see our next question here. Uh, this is from our own James Melton. When do you believe nuclear power will be developed as the best propulsion system for space travel? Well, uh, I believe that um, the most effective way to use nuclear power for space travel is to use it to create chemical propellants on the surface of planets. Uh, the chemical propellant is that you create, say, out of Martian CO2 and water, is nuclear power in portable form. And furthermore, it can be released at high thrust in a very lightweight and inexpensive engine. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so it, 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 this is true if we're talking about the inner solar system, that is Earth and Mars. Uh, now, if we start talking about getting out there to Jupiter and beyond, then there is a need for more advanced kinds of propulsion systems uh, that depend on nuclear power. But in terms of the, uh, it, that is for actual propulsion. But in terms of going to the moon and Mars, um, uh, th this is uh, the best way to do it. This point was actually made to me by a Kraft Erika, who was, um, he was an associate of Werner von Braun. And in, in the 80s, um, I was a very strong believer in uh, nuclear electric propulsion, ion drives, stuff like this. And uh, Erica sent me straight on this. Um, the, the, and the point he made, okay, you know, at this time, we, we didn't know there was water on the moon, but we knew that there were oxides, and so you could make lunar oxygen. And so you could bring some hydrogen to the moon, and the hydrogen is one-seventh of the propellant when you combine it with oxygen in the RL-10 engine, which he had invented. Um, and he says, look, RL-10 has uh, a specific impulse of 450 seconds. It means it gets 450 seconds. Uh, uh, we can do a pound of thrust for 450 seconds with one pound of fuel. That's what it, it means. Um, but if only one-seventh of the propellant is coming from Earth, it effectively has a specific impulse of 3,000 seconds, which is equivalent to the sort of thing electric propulsion could do, but at like, you know, 100,000 times the thrust and with an engine that weighs, you know, 1% uh, as much. Uh, and the, uh, so why not do it that way? 
Uh, so you put the reactor on the moon and you have it make the propellant. And this is even more powerfully for Mars, where we don't even have to bring the hydrogen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I was curious as well about uh, your new book that's coming out. So um, as, as I showed before, I'm reading Case for Mars right now, uh, but I know you have a new book coming out next year. Can you tell us what to expect in the new book? Yeah. Oh, there it is. There's the cover. Um, and by the way, it's the first time I've seen the cover. Uh, Surprise. Okay. Uh, so I guess it's open for pre-order on Amazon right now. Huh? Um that's um, true. It'll be out in February, actually. Uh, yeah. And yes. uh, basically, the idea here is um, it will soon be possible for people to go to Mars. And you should realize that if there's reusable space launch vehicles, that means there's going to also be used space launch vehicles. Mm-hmm. Okay, this has not been a thing up till now. Okay, but it's like, you know, new cars can be pretty expensive. And yet, People of very limited means, a large number of them own cars. How do they get their cars? They bought them used, which is much cheaper, Mm -hmm. maybe even a factor of 10 cheaper uh, than the new car. And so you can get some wheels by buying a used car, even if you're uh, uh, someone working at minimum wage. Uh, Well, there's going to be used launch vehicles around. And and not just from Musk, because there are people who are copying Musk, okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, I happen to know there's at least five companies in China that have gotten investment that are uh, working on knockoffs on the Falcon 9 right now. And then also really the, the new Glenn and, and uh, the rocket lab Neutron uh, have comparable or somewhat better capabilities than the Falcon 9. And if, um, if Starship is successful, there will be people who copy that. And some of them won't just be people running their own launch company. Some of them will be people willing to sell them and then there'll be a used market. And so it'll be possible for groups of people to go to Mars. Okay, so the question then is, what are we going to create when we get there? What is likely to emerge on Mars? And I, I look at this in the broadest way. Not I look at the technology, yes, but also the economy, uh, the social and political forms, the architecture, the aesthetics, and I don't look at it from the point of view of uh, trying to design a utopia. I look at it from the point of view of natural selection. That is, uh, I believe that uh, with this capability in hand, there will be uh, many different city-states founded on Mars by people with quite diverse ideas on what the ideal society should be. And then the question is, what is likely to emerge? Okay, what is likely to prevail? In other words, there'll be a lot of noble experiments um, and people listening to the show. I bet you we got people listening to this show that are libertarians and people who are social Democrats uh, and, and uh, who knows what else we got out there. And you're all going to have a chance to show what you can do on Mars. Uh, and I have certain ideas that I, uh, I, I in this book, I examine what's likely to prevail. Um, now, some of it, is stuff that I really like myself, okay? Like liberty, okay? I believe that all these anti-utopias that uh, are common in science fiction now of tyrannies being established on Mars or somewhere because the government can turn off your air, I think this is nonsense. Uh, Not that it can't happen, but that it it can't prevail. No one would emigrate to such a place. In other words, the the places that get the most immigrants are gonna be the places most attractive to immigrants, 
Um, and uh, they will outgrow the, those with defective social forms. Um, the, I mean, this is why the North outgrew the South. This is why the North won the Civil War. Because um, there were two different ways early America tried to solve its labor shortage. One was gadgeteering, the other was slavery. And gadgeteering led to high wages and therefore very attractive immigrants. Slavery created a situation where uh, immigrants wouldn't want to go there. Why go to a place? If you're a working man, why go to a place where you're going to have to compete with slave labor? No. And this is why the, the North had three times the population of the South. And it's why um, in the Civil War, the Union Army was 40% immigrants and first-generation American. The Confederates were 3%. Um, so there'll be noble experiments done. And liberty, I think, and also liberty is essential for invention, which is going to be a uh, core to... Uh, the success of Mars cities, um, both technically and economically. Uh, but then there's other things uh, that I would give mixed reviews to, uh, because I think that uh, a successful Mars uh, city is going to have a, have a great deal of need for social solidarity mm-hmm. um, and things that bring people together with a uh, togetherness. Okay, well, I'm all for togetherness, but you know, this has been accomplished in many ways on Earth, including things, uh, you know, organized religion, organized nationalism. Um, and I'm a person who doesn't have any use for organized sports, let alone organized religion. Um, but, uh, but I do think that um, Mars is going to have... I, I don't think the... You could have a Mars colony that is based on a single religion, but such colonies will remain small uh, because they only attract a narrow segment of the human population. Uh, so I think the successful Mars colony will be a melting pot, uh, but it won't be multicultural It'll uh, uh, because that creates too much um, division uh, for this kind of thing, um, but a melting pot. And and I think there is a way, while the social solidarity is somewhat in tension with liberty, um, I think that the ones that can resolve this the best uh, will be the ones that, that grow. And also, which people from Earth find the most attractive, because one of the things that a lot of people are uh, unhappy about on Earth right now is the atomization of our society. Okay. Um, the, I think there'll be people that want to be part of a, a community, which is a real community. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but anyway, this is the sort of thing that's explored in the book. Okay. Well, it's out for, for pre-order, it sounds like. So check it out on Amazon, The New World of Mars. Uh, I see we have another question here uh, about food on Mars. Uh, what are your thoughts on the food of Mars? Um I see something about manna of the desert. Tell us more about that. Well, now here's the thing. Okay. Uh, and I think that the Mars Technology Institute is going to have to look hard at this. Okay. It is possible using microbiological technology to have microbes create proteins. And you can make protein crackers. And in a pinch, you could eat them. But most people wouldn't want to eat them for long. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need to integrate that with other systems that upgrade that into desirable food. And here's right. the thing. If you want to, the most successful colony on Mars will be, for instance, 
able to draw people from many nations, which means that you need both wheat and rice and dairy. Okay. In other words, Asians eat rice. I mean, to stereotype it a bit, but you know, Europeans, the crop is wheat or corn. Um, you know, and then Europeans use dairy foods, and uh, Asians in general don't. Um, in other words, you're going to have to have cuisine. Uh, it, people are pretty particular about their food. So mm-hmm. I, I'm looking to be able to make food that isn't just emergency rations, but to create cheap, plentiful food that people will actually like. Mm-hmm. This is part exactly. of the joy of life, to have good food. <laughs> of course, absolutely. Who doesn't enjoy you know, their, their favorite yeah. meal? Um, yeah, if, if it's going to be attractive for, for people to go, they got to have some enjoyment, and, and that comes from, from food for most people. So having a, a cuisine that they like uh, is going to make that trip to, to Mars all the more attractive. Um, I know we're coming up on time here, and, and today's show is a little bit longer than, than we normally do, and, and we're so appreciative of your time. So I've got one more question for you uh, before we finish things up. Uh, my last question is, as the driving force behind the Mars Direct Approach, how do you assess the progress made in terms of spacecraft technology and mission planning to enable human missions to Mars in the, the near future? And what are some of the other challenges that still need to be addressed? to make this real. Okay. All right. Um, okay, and I'm going to answer this, but I just want to mention all this sort of thing, the Mars Technology Institute and all these sorts of questions is going to be discussed uh, at the Mars Society Conference, which is going to be held at Arizona State University, which is near Phoenix, October 5th through 8th. And you can uh, register for the conference and come. And uh, we have a very large number of speakers and uh, you name it. Okay, so... Uh, to really get the full measure of, of discussion of these ideas, uh, come to our conference. And um, the, but to get to your point, mm-hmm. um, the greatest progress that has occurred has occurred through this entrepreneurial uh, space revolution. And yes, it has been spearheaded by Elon Musk, um, and uh, who introduced. Uh, uh, um, First of all, different ways to organize the company around fixed price contracts, but then partial reusability and then increasing degrees of reusability and going for not just reusability, but rapid reusability. Um, You know, I I think SpaceX this year is going to do 100 launches, um, almost to a week. Uh, And, you know, that's more than double what NASA dreamed about but didn't do with the space shuttle. The most they ever got was eight. They thought they they advertised 40. They did do eight. Uh, SpaceX last year did 60, I believe. Um, and this year is headed for 100. And see, reusability only really benefits you if you can reuse something a lot. Okay. You know, if, if you... A car is reusable, but if you could only drive it once a year right. and it has a lifetime of 10 years, it means you actually get to drive your car 10 times, not a thousand times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so the the rapid reusability that's being demonstrated by SpaceX. And then now, the, and then this is being emulated. Uh, so if Musk could go back to concentrating on Mars, uh, I believe he could have people on Mars uh, within 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he, I think he really could. I think he is capable of doing that if he refocuses on that. And um, I, I think he has that in him. Um, uh, and 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 so, uh, and if he does that, um, 
he'll be one of the most important people in human history. He, he, um, you know, certainly has made significant contributions. Um, He is controversial. And I have to tell you, I mean, people know that I'm a very strong supporter of Ukraine and he is not. So we disagree on that. But one has to hand it to him. His accomplishments with SpaceX and also the Tesla Mm -hmm. uh, are tremendous. And if he focuses his talent on this, uh, we'll have people on Mars within 10 years. Now, if he does not, um, then it'll take another 10 years before some of the people that are following him around, that is these other companies that are um, uh, emulating his accomplishments, they're about 10 years behind him. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but, but basically, he has let the cats out of the box. He has convinced people of the value of entrepreneurial space. And by the way, this has had ramifications outside of space. For instance, in fusion power, there are now entrepreneurial fusion companies that have been funded by investors, even though Musk isn't involved in fusion at all. He's more into solar energy. But he's nevertheless, the message is, you know, maybe the problem with fusion was the problem with cheap space launch. Maybe it isn't fundamentally technical. Maybe it's fundamentally institutional. And if we have an entrepreneurial approach, we can make it happen. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, uh, the jury is still out on this. Um, I'm, I'm certainly hoping that Musk refocuses his genius on humans to Mars. Uh, I think Twitter was a big mistake. I hope he can get out of it, uh, sooner rather than later. Um, because, um, you know, the, the really positive thing about Musk compared to say Bezos is he's done things that wouldn't have happened if he hadn't done them. Sure. Such as SpaceX and Tesla, mm-hmm. whereas Amazon, yeah, okay, using internet for marketing, someone was going to do it. Uh, the you know the Google people, there were other people during search engines. He was just the they were just the ones that prevailed over Infoseek and uh, Yahoo and so forth. Uh, the, the, but this is something, and Twitter, Twitter already existed. Um, you know, it's controversial whether he's made Twitter better or worse. Uh, but frankly, Twitter is always going to be Twitter. It's always going to be a place where people take shots at each other. And, uh, uh, you know, but uh, yeah. Elon, refocus, do humans to Mars. Let's make some history here. There's so much potential Let, there. Yeah, especially yeah. with the, the reusability if, if we can focus. I, I remember watching a 60 Minutes, and I, I believe he said in, in the 2030s was the goal of, of getting humans to Mars. Um, I'm not sure if that's a, a realistic timeline at this moment, uh, but I would still love to to see you know a member of my generation be the, the first um, that gets to, to walk on Mars. And so that's, that's my goal as well. That's why I joined the Mars Society. That's why I get to do stuff like this, because I'm passionate about it as well. Right. And, and look, we've got a shot here. If, if they makes a, a starship get to orbit this year and it becomes operational to orbit next year, then, you know, in uh, January 2025, you know, when President Haley goes to her advisors and says, look, here's this guy uh, wants to send humans to Mars. If we got together with him, could we have people on Mars by the end of my second term? They're going to say, yeah, Nikki, you could. And 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 it's not going to cost a trillion dollars either. We could probably do it with NASA's budget because there's a bunch of odds and ends that need to be developed that he's not working on, but we could do the the surface nuclear power, the vehicles, and and she's going to say, well, then let's do it. Okay, so if we can get this kind of thing going, so that the the next president 
uh, assuming the next president is someone who is sane, um, the uh, uh, you know can see that this is a possibility for them to do uh, by making it it feasible. He's going to make it sellable, and 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 we'll get out to Mars with a public-private partnership uh, by 2032. Um, yeah. But if not, this thing could have to wait for the next window and the next uh, company that creates uh, comparable capabilities to SpaceX. Right. Another, another potential option there, but uh, yeah, like I said, hopefully we, we, he refocuses uh, and and we focus on Mars uh, as a collective. Um, Yeah. You've given us such uh, great insights today. So many things to to think about. Um, I want to make sure that I mention uh, if you guys have other questions uh, make sure to check out the Reddit AMA, which is happening this Saturday, September 9th, starting at 1 p.m. Mountain Time. Uh, Dr. Zubrin is going to be taking some additional questions, so please check that out. Uh, I want to say thank you so much, Dr. Zubrin, for joining us today and answering all of our questions. Uh, this was really insightful, and I, I just appreciate your time so much. Uh, special thank yous to uh, Executive Director James Burke. Uh, let's do a thank you to our PR director, Michael Stoltz, our friends at Liveport Group, Michael Lane and Leah uh, Malmos. Uh, and thank you, everybody, for joining today and, and participating in our conversation. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you, everybody, so much. And we'll wrap things up for today. Bye, everybody. Okay, bye. And thanks for having me on the show.